How can you achieve and maintain business growth? Harvard Business School Executive Education is now accepting applications for a new program, Driving Profitable Growth. Taking place in Boston from October 25th through the 28th, this program focuses on business expansion and organizational growth strategies that can lead your company into the future. Learn more about this three-day program for senior leaders by visiting hbs.me growth. That's hbs.me growth. You are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. It is another edition of Locked On NBA. I'm David Locke. We are in Portland for the opening of the preseason. And what does that mean? That means it's time to take advantage, brutally abuse the well-being of the nicest man on the planet, Kevin Pelton. How? I will explain that in just a moment. But it is Locked On NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your NBA favorite team now has a daily podcast for you. Nicely, right about the time of your commute. Easy little grab for you every single day from an expert on your team. So go find it on iTunes and subscribe to Locked On. What is it? Are you a Wolves fan, a Sixer fan, Jazz fan? I host that. You can grab it, so grab whatever podcast uh, that is uh, out there. Today's show is brought to you by Casper, the great mattresses, the super comfortable, the innovative designs. Casper, if you already know about Casper and you're thinking about getting a mattress, go to casper.com slash locked. So it's casper.com slash locked. Casper.com slash locked gives you $50 off the great Casper mattress. All right, well, we're in Portland. Kites flying over the beautiful river on a slightly cloudy day with rain falling that the web-footed Kevin Pelton doesn't even notice. And not only do I make Kevin Pelton do my stats for me just for old time's sake since we did this like 20 years ago. We're getting old. And not only do I make Kevin Pelton do a podcast with me every time in Portland, I make him drive me around town to various meals. You weren't Fred Armisen, were you? I, I was not. I think you can tell distinctively my voice is not Fred Armisen's. No, you're not. I, for those who do not follow Lockdown Jazz, I had dinner the other night in Port last night in Portland, and sitting next to me was Fred Armisen, which is the that like. So we discussed this. Is that the ultimate in Portland? Like, if you're going to have a celebrity and it's not Damian Lillard, is it? Fred Armisen, is there a bigger, more appropriate star to have sitting next to you at restaurant in Portland? Well, it might be Carrie Brownstein because she actually is from Portland. Fred Armisen's more of a poser, like latecomer to Portland. He doesn't even live here full time. so Which makes it more remarkable that he was sitting it, next it to does. He was While he was in town, he was doing stuff with the Blazers at Media Day. Is they uh, they tweeted out a photo of that, so we'll look forward to that coming soon. I I, I don't know what you got of Fred Armisen's upcoming plans from his, overhearing their dinner talk. It was actually stunningly difficult to not like listen because his <laughs> voice is so distinctive that you tried to hear it. I, I think we had like A one and A three star, and Damian Lillard is A two. Maybe so. Maybe it was A two and A four because we had to wait for Terry Stotts to leave his table for us to be able to sit down. And so that really made, all right. So anyway, enough of that. Kevin Pelton is ESPN's guru, his player profiles that he did 20 of the 30 teams, Bradford Doolittle did the other 10 teams. I think it was are absolutely fabulous. If it's worth getting insider just for that, uh, make sure you grab his, all of his work on ESPN. Um, he is generally an insider, but not always, almost always, most of the time. But you can get some of his stuff. But generally subscribe to Insider so you can get Kevin Pelton. Uh, we'll get into it, but why don't you, while we're here, before we dig into the meat, give a few teases out to whatever you want to tell people to listen to. So I mean, to read for. Well, right now, I think the uh, the future power rankings just went up on the site uh, today, Monday morning. So that's that's always a, uh, a fun bit of contention with uh, NBA fans during the season. It's how... How, based on a formula, considering their talent on the roster, uh, their salary cap flexibility, their draft picks, the market, and then the, already their management, how they will estimating how they will fare over the next three seasons. Golden State one, Boston two, Minnesota three. Uh, Cleveland is is in there. Well, they're pretty good. Forgot about them. And I think San Antonio is also ahead of Minnesota. Minnesota is in fifth, and then in sixth place, the Utah Jazz. All right, we'll discuss this more coming up. Plus, we'll talk about three-point shot and where it is, because this is what we did a year ago at this time. Some various team rosters, some trends, things we're looking for. That's what's all coming up on today's edition of Lockdown NBA, brought to you by Casper, casper.com slash NBA. So a year ago, I sat here, and I don't know if you recall, but the first question 
uh, probably preseason game number one or something of the sort, was basically how many threes should people take. So last year we went from 26.7 of our shot attempts to 28.1 of the shot attempts in the league as three-pointers, which is not that big an increase. And what I thought was interesting is there's so much of a move to restricted area or three-point shots, but the jump in that went from 58.9% of shots were either in the restricted area or threes to 606 So there was actually almost no change in the restricted area, a slight move up in the NBA. Why was there not a bigger jump when everyone's talking about this? Defense. I mean, that, I think, so I listened to your podcast with Zach Harper, your most recent Locked On NBA, as I was coming down here and was kind of thinking about this a little bit. And, you know, the, the fact is, as much as everyone is talking about you need to shoot threes, everyone is also talking about you need to prevent threes and prevent shots at the rim. And so now it's not a case where there's just the one force. There are conflicting forces, and we kind of find out what happens when they come in contact. And uh, what I think you find out there is that the offense tends to control more of the shot selection in terms of and, – and performance, certainly, almost all of performance from long distance – but the defense, I think, tends to have more influence on shot selection at the rim and then performance at the rim. So defenses are obviously doing – they're staying at home more. They're not helping as much. They're, they're uh, thinking more about these decisions as opposed to just doing the same thing that has been done for years and years before everyone realized how valuable the three was, and in particular the corner three. Uh, that's still not going to prevent the rise of threes. It's, it's not going to stop it, but it is going to slow it down to some extent. Your comment when I asked you last time, how many should you take? Your comment was take five more and then take five more and then take five more until you think you've gotten to too many. Where is the point? So let me phrase the question slightly differently. What's the most the defenses are going to allow you to take? Where is the point where those two forces you're talking about actually put a block and where that's just you just can't get more than X amount of percent of your shots being threes? All right, well, let me think about this more from a conceptual standpoint than like a number standpoint. And I think we'll know that teams are shooting enough threes that are fully teams are fully maximizing the value of the three when teams that shoot more threes are no longer more successful than teams that don't shoot as many threes. That's that's it. Or at least when that relationship is dwarfed by the relationship uh, between three-point percentage and success on offense. So this is, by the way, I, just on a side note, I was actually doing some research on evolving on women's college basketball for a, a head coach in women's basketball of where the three... It's the same thing. Like, you go run... the. Every league in the world. I mean, I don't know about like sixth grade YMCA boys basketball and girls basketball. That might be different. But I've looked at this. You know, I, I don't think I've looked at women's college basketball, men's, men's college basketball, the WNBA, uh, the Euro League, the D League, everywhere. And this is one thing that I think about. People often say, oh, it's cyclic. this is a cyclical game. And eventually we're going to get to the point where defenses are taking away the three so much that the long two is actually going to become come back and vote. That's a, a popular thing people like to say. And here's the thing. The NCAA is shooting – the NBA now is shooting threes as often as the NCAA did two decades ago. And they never had that. The only way that any other league has ever found to reduce the number of three-point attempts o over time is to move the three-point line back. That is it. Should we move the three-point line back? Not right now. I, I don't think we're at that point yet. I think we should start to be starting to consider it. So not a four-point play, but just a more difficult three-point play? Uh, I mean, obviously, my uh, my dear friend and colleague Tom Haber Haberstrow is the uh, the the man behind the four point play movement. So I don't I don't want to uh, necessarily, but I think you know part of his logic behind the value of the four point line is that way you know you'd stretch the court even farther and then open things up for play inside. And I think moving the three point line would offer some of that same benefit. And uh, you know, Kirk Goldsberry talked about this a lot in the spring. A lot of what you would be doing is really taking away the marginal guy, the guy who can only shoot the three from 22 feet or 23 feet, nine, nine inches or, you know, in the corner, uh, the shorter version of that. But, you know, if you go out to 25 feet, then all of a sudden would struggle. Uh, whereas the truly great shooters, the, the Steph Curry's of the world, the Damian Lillard's here in Portland, uh, would still be very effective even from that long distance. Right, before we get more from Kevin about what skill sets are going to be most important in the NBA in this coming year, who should shoot threes, some more things of that nature, and the big picture topic of the NBA, let me talk to you about Casper mattresses. I've got a great opportunity for you here with Casper. If you go to casper.com slash locked, you get $50 off 
at checkout. Now, let's tell you about Casper. It's the innovatively designed mattress company that has revolutionized how mattresses are sold. It's eliminated the commission-driven inflated prices and instead giving the award-winning sleep surface at great prices. So I think you understand how the mattress industry has worked. It's been notorious for high markups, and and so it's not been good for the customer. And Casper's come in and said, okay, we can do this better. We're going to do it better with great technology, sending it to you in a small, oh my gosh, how did it arrive like this size box, and then give you a great sleep. So Casper's a sleep company, really, because they do pillows and breathable sheets and mattresses, but the mattresses are the driving force behind Casper. First thing you want is quality. In-house team of engineers has spent thousands of hours developing this incredible springy latex supportive memory foam for a sleep surface that's just right. Right sink, right bounce, breathable design, sleeps cool to help you regulate temperature through the night. It's terrific. That's the key to the whole thing. And I understand that if you're going to go buy a mattress, you'd really, you know, it's weird to do it where it comes in a box. So Casper's answered that problem for you. They'll give you a hundred nights risk free in your own home. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up. They'll refund you everything. Free shipping U.S. and Canada. It's terrific. Go to casper.com slash locked and you get $50 off the following prices. So a twin mattress is $500. It'll be $450 for you. Full, $750. Queen, Eight fifty, King nine hundred fifty dollars, but you can take fifty dollars off all of that when you go to Casper.com slash locked. It's obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It's just terrific. Plus the hundred night sample makes it even better. Casper.com slash locked. I promise you'll get a great night's sleep. You'll love this innovative design. It'll make you happy. Now back to Kevin plug so we're doing it for part of our lunch conversation was Derek Favors so regardless if you're a jazz fan or not Derek Favors is a six foot ten power forward who is kind of an average to below average mid-range shooter that shoots a relatively decent amount of of mid-range shots in, in a in a given game and shoots last year his back caused him some problems but generally shot about 34 35 percent from 16 feet to to three-point range and the point is that if he's only going to shoot 33 to 34% from 16 feet to three-point range, he might as well go take those three shots a night from three because all he has to do is hit 22% of those to be as efficient. And it just by being outside further, it actually makes him stretch the floor and the threat of him possibly making it. Yeah, I mean, first off, I think this speaks to what you've talked about, about your move this year to not reference field goal percentage at all and strictly use effective field goal percentage, which I think is a great move. You know, it really is hard for people to conceptually get beyond the fact that, you know, someone says player X is a 30% three-point shooter. Like, we all know intuitively that's terrible, but... You know, when you say that player Y is a 42% mid-range shooter, we don't have that same intuitive, visceral kind of negative reaction to it, even though you're getting fewer points from those shots. And then the other aspect of it, stretching that defense one step farther, you know, speaks to the gravity effect that we've talked about so much on this podcast and how just by shooting more threes, you are making your life easier for everyone else inside the three-point line uh, because of defensive gravity. I think, you know, one of the most interesting things I've seen about the NBA this offseason, I would recommend everyone check this out. We can we can tweet a link to this, but uh, it's on the Basketball Analytics blog, or BasketballAnalyticsBook.com, their blog. Wait, wait, what is this site? BasketballAnalyticsBook.com. I actually happen to have the, the book with me. It's in my backpack right now. Who wrote it? Uh, Chris Baker and Stephen Shea. Uh, and they have been using SportView data to, from the 2014-15 season to look at kind of the shape of offenses and defenses and how that influences their their success. So recently they posted about defenses and the defenses that help off three-point shooters the least and then the defenses that help off three-point shooters the most. And the interesting thing that they found, and again, you should go read this entire post to see how they determine this and the actual math behind it, is that... The, the extremes either way were the most successful defenses in 2014-15. It was the teams that helped the least and therefore gave up very few threes, or the teams that really aggressively doubled and then forced a lot of turnovers, even though they sacrificed some, some threes in the process. So Milwaukee that year, you think of Atlanta the last couple of years, the way they've aggressively trapped on the perimeter. And those teams have generally been successful. And if you're kind of stuck in that, there's an unhappy medium, it appears, where if you kind of help halfway but not all the way, you're getting the worst of both worlds. 
Fascinating. All right, so you, as always, have suddenly ventured into an area that I wasn't prepared for, but of course I have some sort of spreadsheet that gets me prepared for, so I quickly scramble over to my computer and load up a spreadsheet to try to find something. And this is this is a conversation we've never had. We've, we, have, we have done every single one of our conversations has always been focused on offense. And we have never, and this is why I'm not prepared, held this conversation on what our defenses doing. So let's talk about those defenses last year that allowed the fewest amount of three-point shots. Who were they? What what did uh, the San Antonio Spurs, who allowed 23.7% of their opponent's shots to be threes, what did the Detroit Pistons, who are 24.3, Philadelphia 76ers also, so this would lead you not to believe that it's talent-based, it's scheme-based. Chicago Bulls are only allowed 25.7, Miami at 25.7, the Knicks of all things with Derek Fisher only allowed 25.7% of their opponent's shots to be threes. So those were the six best teams. Now, I think it would also be worth noting there's not an incredible correlation to winning here, unlike if you look at the best offensive teams, by the way, to what Kevin's point was earlier. If you look at the teams on offense that took the most threes last year, uh, I believe the number is, and I will confirm it, seven of nine, or six of the top eight, I believe, uh, checking it right now, eight of the top ten and ten of the top twelve all made the playoffs of just attempts. We're not even talking about makes and percentage. We're just taking attempts. So what are these teams, San Antonio, Detroit, Philadelphia, Chicago, Miami, and New York doing schematically? Interesting, by the way, worth noting that five of those six are Eastern Conference teams. Uh, what are they doing schematically that's keeping threes away? I'm surprised that Portland isn't higher than those. Are you sorting just by corner threes? No, threes? I'm total threes. Percentage of total threes, I believe. I can search corner threes for you, though, if you'd like. I mean, I'm just that quick. Right in my brain. Just so quick with my brain. Uh, what column is that? X. Yeah, oh, that's my brain. Um, I have Portland as 10th in the league, allowing corner threes. Warriors, Detroit, Chicago, Philadelphia, same group. New York, Pelicans, actually. Spurs, Thunder, Clippers, Blazers, allowing... Not allowing corner threes. So what what is what is the defensive scheme here, and why does it not seem to be related to actually being good defensively? Well, I mean, I think you are sacrificing something when you're doing this on defense. So Portland, I think, is a really interesting example of this because we know from what Terry Stotts has said. First off, we know that they're an organization that really looks at the numbers and that Terry Stotts is someone that values them in his decision-making process. And we know based on what he said that this is really strategic where they want to take away high-value shots. And they don't, as you said, have a lot of defensive talent necessarily. I don't think what people think of. They don't have, didn't have at least last season a great rim protector. Uh, this year they're hoping Festus Azili can be that guy for them. They uh, are, you know, undersized, I would say, at the guard spots with C.J. McCollum and Damian Lillard. So they're going to give up some penetration, and they're going to have to help. And I think they did get more aggressive last season to try to create some turnovers. But generally, they're a team that's going to play very conservatively defensively, try not to get into rotation, and try to stay home on shooters. And they will live with the fact that sometimes you're going to get an open mid-range shot as a result of that. You know, uh, I've had this conver- these conversations with coaches, and they, you know, they they don't ever want to talk about and what what will give up because they always want to try to take away everything. But some in the strategic choices you make, you are going to give up some things more than others, and they're willing to live with those open range shots. Is there a correlation? I've never run this between those teams that really defend the rim and those teams that allow threes. Or are you capable of doing both? The Spurs, the Hawks, the Knicks, the Blazers. The Heat and the Thunder were the six teams. I like to do six, by the way, because that's 20%, um, 25% um, of the league, right? 20%, you got it. 20%? Six is 20. One out of five. Yeah, so 20%. 20%. Yeah, sorry, six. I said it wrong. Uh, those are the teams, the Spurs, the Hawks, the Knicks, the Blazers, the Heat, and the Thunder were the six teams that defended the rim the best. Now, just percentage-wise, not necessarily attempts, uh, the Spurs... I believe were dramatically better than anyone else. Is there any? Is there a yin for a yang? As coaches like to believe, no. The Cavaliers allowed the fewest shots at the rim of any team in the league last year. Um, is there any yin for a yang here? Right, really. Uh, I, you know, I don't think there necessarily is, and here's why: is because, well, because of the fact that I think sometimes when you have the great rim protector who can protect the rim, it also allows you to stay home. So that's where I think of like Indiana in their heyday under Frank Vogel, they were so comfortable with Roy Hibbert just sweeping up basically any penetration that everyone else was able to stay home. And that's why they were able to defend both the rim and the three. 
That makes sense. By the way, I misspoke. The Sacramento Kings actually allowed the fewer shots at the rim last year of all weird things, 28.4%. Then Dallas, then Cleveland, then Washington, then Charlotte. Okay, so it's, it's not a perfect stat. No. <laughs> I mean, so it's interesting. We have not... We have, we're still struggling to find statistically how to define good defensive players, right? Yeah. Real plus minus seems to be the best feeling from some people, but not on a year to year basis. I think people have agreed on that. It's better over time, as you've said. So have we figured out anything to look at what is schematically a smart defense team wise on what, what your team should look like? I mean, if I look, if I just run, so I have good shots, right? Your percentage of, teams that force the most amount of shots in the mid-range in the league, would that correlate? Do you think that's going to correlate directly to who the best defensive teams are? No, but I think it'll correlate better. Spurs, Pistons, Heat, Warriors, Cavaliers, Trailblazers are the top six. The worst, Bucks, Nets, Grizzlies, Rockets, Magic, Timberwolves. Boy, that's interesting that the Rockets are in there from last year. Well, and that's the baffling thing about the Rockets that is intrigues me about them this year is obviously no one has has planned their offense more around uh, shot charts and shot value than the Rockets, and yet they've never been able to do it at the defensive end. And similarly, San Antonio probably has the best defensive shot chart in the league, and has you know if you look over the last ten years, without without a doubt, they would. And then offensively, they haven't done it, it probably quite as well. So no one has really managed to unlock it at both ends of the court. And you know who knows, maybe Houston does this year with a new coaching staff. But uh, the other thing I, I think that comes up is you can see that there's a lot of teams that are repeated here. This is a schematic thing. This is not a coincidence. But uh, the other thing worth noting here is uh, a, a Utah guy, Ken Pomeroy. At the college level, has done. He's a weather guy. That's, Was that's that's true. Uh, has done a lot of great work at the college level about what stats offenses control and what stats defenses control. Which is what I was talking about earlier with the threes and the shot, shots th- that are threes and shots at the rim. And offenses have more, much more control over the outcome of a shot. Defenses, the one place they really tend to exert a lot of control is forcing turnovers which is not a variable that we're considering when we look at these shot locations. So I think that's part of why shot location isn't as deterministic on defense as it is on offense, because we're factoring out this other key part, one of the four factors of offense or defense. All right, this is 20 minutes of head-spinning stuff so far. So let's summarize it and then move on to teams and individuals. If you, with your numbers base, coached an NBA team defensively, would you try to force turnovers? Would you play in a shell? Would you switch everything just to prevent three? What would be the approach you would take? See, I mean, that's where I'm going to give the cop out answer to it. No, I'm not allowing that. I'm not. No, I'm not allowing the personnel. The purely, purely numbers. And let's assume that you have a general manager going to go get you the personnel. Okay. If you, if you, you're, I'm going to go. I'm your GM. I'm going to go get you the. What is it you want to do? I think I would probably want to switch. Ideally, one through five. At least one through four. I think I would want to switch one through four and have a rim protector at the five. And, uh, you know, that that way, you know, you're still achieving the same thing in terms of staying out of rotation, not giving up the catch-and-shoot threes. You're probably, you know, you're maybe going to give up a few more pull-up threes in those in those kind of situations. But uh, you're, you're taking teams out of what they want to do offensively and, and how they want to move the ball. But that one's probably the hardest personnel to go out there and find. Okay, I don't know why 22 minutes ago I was fretting over topics for this <laughs> podcast because we haven't hit any of them yet. But now I'm moving to the next thing that's not on our list. This is just seriously, I got to share this. So Kevin and I spend the day together, but there's like at least five times during the day where we say, stop, that's the podcast. And then we move on to the next conversation we're going to have that's not part of the podcast. But I actually don't think we're going to hit any of those topics in the podcast. Okay. Well, one of them was the percentage of threes. Okay. So I've been at jazz training camp every day. The amount of plays that I have seen implemented based on switching defenses, right? So that's what every coach in this league has done. It's now changed offenses and switch to figure out how to deal with switching. So if you talk about these two combating forces, what is the skill and what, who's the player? What is the player that becomes more valuable? If everyone's going to switch, because that's really where everyone's going, everyone's going to switch and play, maybe small to switch. What are the skill sets that become more valuable now if everyone's switching? Well, then it's the ability to create a shot one-on-one against with a slight mismatch. Because now what you're doing is, you know, even though you're staying out of rotation, what I'm giving up by switching is that 
all of a sudden, if I have one guy who's a wing stopper defensively, you know, that guy now is not going to be on the opponent's best player because I've switched him off, probably. So now if you've got that guy who can get a shot one-on-one, whether it's in the post or off the dribble, that guy has a more favorable matchup. Why doesn't the ability, this is a rare ability, why doesn't the ability for a four to score in the post become more valuable? That if you're suddenly switching one through four, and every time you switch, I now pull back out and go back to old school post with my big on your little mini guard, I now am getting a high percentage two. That's no, that's precisely that's precisely it. I think Zach Lowe wrote about that a few years ago at Grantland, that you know the eulogy, part, postponed the eulogy for the post up because the oh, switching... Well, all right, Pay. <laughs> you said eulogy, Grantland, same sentence, I thought. Okay. I don't know if I'm allowed to comment on that. Uh, but but that's where that comes back into vogue is uh, because of the switching defense. Now, I'm going to try to make that entry pass as difficult as possible. I'm going to try and run down the shot clock so you don't have time to work into the post. But, yeah, I mean, that's one thing. You're, either you're going to give that up or you're going to have to now double team and help in the post. And now you've accomplished exactly what I didn't want to do, which is to get into defensive rotation. Everybody talks about you got to play fast. You got to play fast. You got to get the shots off early. But it really, that may be true. But are we getting into the score early, score late that you and I have talked about before and know well that the minute I don't get something early in the offense and they start switching, now I'm actually going to work a whole sequence of actions to get the switches how I want and get those mismatches that we're talking about. I mean, you know, the concern is then the shot clock becomes the sixth defender, as, as coaches have talked about, because of the fact that there's that time pressure and you're going to have to. You have less, less, uh, you know, you have less secondary options. But uh, that also speaks to, I think, the need to play fast, not necessarily to score fast, but just to get into your offense fast, so that you can take, get that, create that switch, and still have enough time to take advantage of it. Almost what you'd call a thrust up the floor. <laughs> sure, sure. The it's a new stat we'll have to look at. Uh, who? The other thing that we're talking about is any team that has multiple high-level wing defenders becomes incredibly valuable, right? Because if you have Andre Iguodala and he's a great defensive player and he's guarding, I don't know whom, but some great wing, so I run a pick-and-roll to get him switched. On, But I also have Clay Thompson, who's a very good defensive player. Or if I have Avery Bradley and I also have Marcus Smart, then suddenly I'm even – who are the teams out there that actually have enough – is Danny Green and Kawhi Leonard? Like, who are the teams that actually have multiple really good wing defenders that can combat some of this so that you take your my A1 defender, but my A2 is still good enough to handle it? Yeah, I think you've probably named most of them in the league. There's no one else that's jumping up, off it, jumping out to me off the top of my head. I mean, you know, maybe you could say that a team like Detroit could get there if Stanley Johnson improves in his second season. Contavious Caldwell-Pope has already become pretty good, and that's a team that I think – uh, certainly could exemplify this style because of the fact that you've got a mobile four and whether you want to say Tobias Harris or, or Marcus Morris is the four there. Yeah, th- that's, you know, I might be missing someone because we're doing this quickly, but those are the teams I think of. Right, so if we're talking about skills. We talked about that one-on-one breakdown dribble skill off a switch mismatch or is going to come back in the game or it's going to become more important. Do we just decide that someone has the ability to play back to the basket became more important in some sense? If they have a, that same ability mismatch-wise? We did, yeah, as long as they can keep up defensively. That's the key. Because I think there's, you know, generally, if you look at post-up scores, there's a pretty negative correlation with their foot speed defensively. Any other skill sets here? Any other thing that we're going to uh, – the mobile four was last year's in vogue thing, the Millsap, Draymond Green, or someone who's able to do the mobile four type things because you can switch one through four. What other skill set do you think will become in vogue that we just, as this league evolves in this in this – combating of forces that you've talked about. All right. Well, the other one that I think is going to become interesting this year is uh, the the point guard who can pull up off the dribble from beyond beyond the three-point line. Because if you're going to, you know, that guy, now you have to trap them. And that, that creates all sorts of problems in its own right. So, obviously, Steph Curry but and Lillard are the guys. Campbell from, Walker? Uh, I, you know, I don't know if he has that deep three-point range necessarily. I mean, that's that's a real distinguisher between guys because even you know even Lillard doesn't shoot it. He shoots at about league average off the dribble, which is good enough to do it. But uh, Kyle Lowry maybe is is borderline in there. But there's not a lot of guys. That's a really difficult skill. Okay, Jazz point guard is George Hill. Last year on catch and shoot threes, I think he was something like forty-four percent, something remarkable. Maybe it was open three. Is that shot going to still be available? Is that the shot that's going away? 
Oh, I mean, it's never going away. It's never completely going away. And, you know, it's it's still valuable for a guy like Hill because of the fact that if you're Utah, you have wings who you're going to want to put the ball in their hands. And when they're drawing help, it's going to be Hill who's often going to be the guy who's open. You're really cool and, like, a really big deal. Um, and so you have access to stuff that I don't have access to. And um, I've been asking you to do some research, and you won't get back to me because you're doing what you're supposed to because you're a good company guy, and you won't allow me to ask through these things. So I just thought I'll call you out on the air about it. So I have a theory that I point – I don't know if I'm killing this entire segment, but I, I don't have access to that anymore. Oh. Oh, well, then I'll ask you what your thoughts are without numerical background, but you should get access to it so that you can do this research. So I've talked to a bunch of co- – I brought this up with Quinn in our interview, Quinn Snyder, head coach of the Jazz Unlocked in NBA. Point guards are getting run off 50, 60 pick and rolls, whatever crazy amount of picks a game. They're very used to it. Twos and threes and fours are not used to defending in that same way, nor are necessarily all twos and threes defendant used to being – or a 4-1 pick and roll is the one used to being – the inverted pick and roll or the change, which is, would be a 4-1 pick and roll or something of that sort, or the you know, two, the shooting guard, the small forward, the power forward with the ball in their hand. I want to know if those pick and roll combinations are becoming more efficient in this league, uh, even though maybe they're not as good a ball handler as the point guard because the defenders aren't as used to it and the teams haven't practiced those combinations as much. Yeah, I remember listening to that that particular discussion on Locked on NBA, and I had the same thought where I was like, I, I wish I could look that up, but I can't anymore. It It is certainly intuitively logical, and uh, you know, I think watching the game, it makes sense, but I don't have the numbers to prove it. Who has those numbers that would be listening to us right now that should do that? <laughs> I, I don't know that anyone who, I, I guess team employees may have access. Well, feel free to tweet me at, at Locked on Sports and him at at K Pelton and let us know the answers to that. All right, big, are we done with all big pictures? Should we go? I had trends down on my notes. Do we have any other trends that you're looking at in this season? I think we've touched on kind of where we think the the game changing and the influential position and the skill sets. Anything else you'd add to that? Uh, do we want to talk about where the three point percentage of all shots settles this year? So I last year it was at twenty eight point one. Year previous was at twenty six point seven. Where do you think it settles? I I think it's you know I think it'll I, I will take the under if you're going to set the line at thirty percent this year. I don't, you don't think, think we'll get over thirty percent of all threes. No, I don't think it will quite that substantial of a jump. I think it was only kind of that first year that Houston started playing this style that we really saw that big of a jump. I am taking the over, and I feel so good about this. I can't decide what I'm going to bet. And you want to know why I feel so good about it? Look who got fired. Again, I listen to this. So I agree with you about New York. That's, that's going to be a positive. We'll see how much Phil Jackson's influence is there. Uh, I agree with you about who who's the, uh, I, who's the other team you mentioned besides Memphis. Uh, Minnesota has a new coach. Oh, yeah. No, Minnesota Brooklyn has a new coach. Memphis has a new coach. Chicago's coach might actually put a stamp on it, but with that roster, if they shoot threes, they just uh, might be ugly. Um, and the Knicks have a new coach. So of the teams that were in the bottom eight of the league, does Orlando have a new coach? Yes. So of the teams in the bottom nine, Sacramento has a new coach. Of the teams in the bottom ten in three-point attempts last year, boy, it might mean you should shoot threes. Like, hey, Sam Mitchell, if you'd stopped yelling at us so much and shot threes, maybe, just maybe you could have been considered for that job. But anyway, um, the those are the teams. They all change coaches. Indiana, frankly, is next on the list. So the of the 11 teams that took the fewest amount of three-point shots last year, I, I probably should make sure that that's the sword I have up. I think it is. Um, this is, before I go too far, this is correct. So I'm going If we were tw- I'm going over 30 because uh, Milwaukee's got the same coach. Minnesota, who was 29th, does not. Brooklyn, who was 28th, does not. Memphis, 27th, does not. Miami and San Antonio have the same coach. Chicago does, but ho- whatever. Uh, the Knicks, 23rd, do not. Orlando, 22nd, does not. Sacramento, 21st, does not. Indiana, at 20th, does not. But a lot of these teams swapped coaches within within their ranks. Uh, you know, Dave Yeager going from Memphis to Sacramento. I think they probably will shoot threes. I don't think that Memphis will shoot many more threes with Dave Fisdale this year because I think that's more of a personnel issue than it was the, the coach's particular uh, predilection uh, last year. Minnesota is the one that I think will jump pretty considerably because it, I looked at this when he went to uh, Chicago at first, Tom Thibodeau. Their ratio of long twos to threes dropped substantially that first year. So even though we don't think of Thibs as a 
stats guy in any sense. You know, I don't I don't know that it's necessarily influenced by the stats. He still thinks that way. Ooh, interesting. Yeah, and there's a few coaches like that. I think to some extent, you know, Pop, you know, some of what they do, even though it matches up really well with the statistics, I think it's just his instincts, you know, lining up there. Pop is actually much more of a money ball defensive coach than a money ball offensive coach. Yes, I mean, they've shot more threes in the past, certainly. But, yeah, like I said, teams have struggled to do it at both ends. Uh, I think the other interesting thing here is the question of, you know, you talked with Zach about the percentage of shots that are open threes. And, you know, when I you talked about uh, Ryan Anderson and Eric Gordon going from New Orleans, which was high in that measure, to Houston, which is low. And I think if you, it might be different if you looked at it in terms of just total open threes. I think Houston still gets a lot of open threes, but they take a lot of contested threes because they just take a lot of threes. And at some point, there's only so many open threes to get. You're having to take those more marginal threes. You know, it's the the marginal return. It's not the average return on them. What do you think? Well, the what is the point where the percentage of three point shooting starts to drop? It has not. That has not happened yet. Right, the three point percentage is holding pretty consistent. Am I correct on that? Is there a point where it drops because we're taking so many? It still doesn't matter. It's still a more efficient shot if you keep t- if it drops. But do we? Ha- we haven't seen any drop yet, have we? You know, I think that's going to take a bigger scale, like psychological shift among coaches, because what you see is the three point percent. So I've looked at, when I've looked at this in the past, you know, the three point percentage after being low the first couple of years they put the line in the NBA, then it gets relatively the same. You look at other leagues, they're all relatively around that 35 percent mark. And what that tells me, because it, and then the, the attempts continue to go up and up and up in all of these leagues. What that tells me is coaches are basically saying we're going to shoot as many threes as we can and sh- make 35 percent of them. So what it requires is a coach, you know, with a GM like Daryl Morey to say, no, we're going to shoot more threes than than we can make at thirty five percent. That's what it requires. Interesting. Oh, Pelton's on fire. Follow him on Twitter at @kpelton. Uh, we've had a whole summer to think of this stuff. I know. Well, we've done a podcast this summer. Um, all right. I had one other. I was going to add in on that conversation point right there. Oh, if we're, if we're going big picture again. Not getting into my notes. What is the? All right. So if you scored a two point shot on every possession, your offensive rating would be. 200. The best offensive rating we've ever seen in the league has been what? It's about 115, I think. Who was that? Uh, the, well, the best relative to league average was actually the 2003-04 Mavericks, uh, the, the last Steve Nash team before he went to Phoenix. We, the Mavericks, a few years ago, before they decided to destroy their franchise and trade for Rajon Rondo, were on a pretty similar pace to that, right? They were ahead of that pace, although obviously it was a small sample size at that point. What is the theoretical maximum? Theoretical maximum of what a team's offensive efficiency can be, because we may see it this year. <laughs> yeah, that is a good question. Um, so this makes me think a little bit about uh, a book I'm reading right now, which I believe is called The Success Equation. I should probably double-check what the name of the book is. They talk about a, a concept I had never seen introduced, the paradox of skill. So the better everybody gets at something, the more skill is a, less skill is a differentiator. Does that make sense? All right, say this again. Say it one more time. Okay, the better the, everyone gets at something, the less skill differentiates between people. Give a basketball example. I will. I have one in mind. Uh, the, the best players in the WNBA have been better statistically. Like, the best PERs ever are all better in the WNBA than they are in the NBA. And it's not because of the fact that... It's because an individual star can shine greater in the WNBA because their talent probably still isn't to the point that the NBA talent is than they can. Does that make sense? It's also why the greatest, you know, the most outlier statistical seasons in baseball, for example, tended to happen in the 1920s, the 1930s, you know, Babe Ruth. When the African-Americans weren't allowed to play, so the talent, the lesser good, the less good player, the difference between the, the least good player and the best player was at a higher margin. Yes. So you're saying the difference between player one and player 450 in the NBA is more narrow than player one and player 150 in the, or 200, whatever it is, in the WNBA. And so that allows is that am i following you correctly yes yeah, since those are the PR. Uh, for those of you that are normal brained people like me that i tried to help you there it's hard to hang next to kevin since per is adjusted for league average it works like that so that's that's why all the highest PERs in, are in the wnba all time uh so i i think there's an element of that probably with offense where 
the, all offenses are so good that it's a little harder to stand out, uh, the, the examples of the recent Suns notwithstanding. But uh, that that answer aside, I would say, you know, and again, it depends on how you're calculating offensive rating. This is partially why I'm hedging on giving you a specific number. Uh, so, it you know, it depends how you're calculating possessions. But I'd say, you know, the way that I define it, somewhere around 120 is probably the the theoretical maximum, probably. And what do you think the Warriors will be? I don't think they'll be at 120. Having, having seen them the other night, that there is going to be a, an element of adjustment. They, they looked a little rough, although they only, they only had four practices at that point. They'll have, they'll have more than that in the books by uh, the time I next see them on November 1st. So, you know, there, and again, there is some diminishing returns to the extent that, you know, uh, when you get guys like Durant and Curry together, one of their best skills is the ability to create a lot of shots without seeing a decrease in their efficiency. So if you put them together, now they're only a little bit more efficient, even though they're creating a lot fewer shots. So it doesn't quite help as much. But the fact that you have so much shooting, there's not really diminishing returns to shooting. There are exponential returns to shooting. Okay, so there are all sorts of different reason, ways to rate player or to rank uh, efficiency, which is absurd. We really need to get everybody on the same page on this issue. But um, and I don't know how you're going to do that, Kevin. But I, I deem you responsible. Uh, so the best ever was that Dallas team, relative to what you got. And relative, and so the Warriors will have to be the. We'll see if the Warriors can surpass that. Uh, quick. Thanks again to Casper for sponsoring today's podcast, and it's Casper.com slash NBA if you'd like to jump on. All right. Um, I think you and I disagree on something, but I heard uh, the esteemed Ben Golliver not totally disagree with me on this one, and so uh, I want to bring it up. So I'm having a hard time with the Spurs roster. So this, and a little bit of being devil's advocate. Remember, I didn't really buy the Spurs last year, so I missed entirely on the Spurs last year, so I'm just going to miss on them again. So I look at the Spurs, and I thought Ben Golliver made a really interesting point that three of their four post players are brand new, and their fourth one's only been there for a year. So there is a whole changing of the guard there. And then I look, and their bench, so David Lee and Dwayne Dedman are their bigs. Jonathan Simmons and Kyle Anderson are their wings off the bench with Manu at 39 years old. Their starting point guard, Tony Parker, is showing signs that he is not the same, and their starting shooting guard, Danny Green, seems, at least last year, to maybe be directly correlated to how Tony Parker plays on how he does and whether Tony Parker's creating things for him, because when Tony struggled early, Danny did too, and when Tony got a little better. And maybe I'm tarnished by the fact that the last time we saw them, they did look just awful against Oklahoma City. But... You've run the numbers on it, which I like the beauty of you on this one, that you're not getting caught up in maybe the emotion that I am is looking. I think Kawhi Leonard's unbelievable. I'm not sure on LaMarcus still. I've never been a huge believer, and frankly, I thought it was telling that Portland was as good without him as with him, um, though they played a different style. So is there anything where I'm looking at this? And and when I say I'm not buying, I I think maybe I'm saying I think they're a 50-win team instead of a 58-win team, right? I I just don't think that they're anywhere near – I don't know. That's I guess let's just go with that. So maybe not buying is a ridiculous phrase, but what's your thought on on that team? Because that's the team where I'm I'm looking at the roster and I'm having a little bit of a hard time. I don't think you're wrong. I mean, last year they won much more with their bench than with their starters. Their bench really just decimated people. Uh, so not having a lot of that depth is going to be a big issue for them. You didn't mention my guy, Patty Mills, who I still think is a big advantage for them. You know, if he's not having to replace Tony Parker in the starting lineup at some point, having him coming off the bench and playing with Manu, that's, that's probably the best backup backcourt in the NBA when they're healthy. So, and then Dwayne Dedman, I like what he brings to them because it's an element they didn't have last season in terms of athleticism defensively at the five spot and then just a role any role man like nobody on their roster was a guy who rolled hard to the basket and had that kind of that kind of spacing down the or uh, gravity down the the paint as a role man so that's a nice addition for them i like that i think i wonder if they start to use pow a little more with the second unit to create because they'll need his ability to create offense more with those guys than they might need it with the starters pow is an interesting one because part of the reason their rpm projection is so strong it's uh, you know i think 56 wins somewhere around there is that despite the fact that the bulls did not seem to play particularly well with pow on the court his individual statistics were so strong that his rpm was still good and so we'll see if that's legit or not 
I th- Why is there this vibe around Powell that he somehow is not as good a player as he once was? His numbers are fabulous. And, like, people criticize his All-Star year of two years ago when he was virtually a 2010. So what is the issue with Powell? So I wrote about this a few years ago when Chicago's defense was struggling during his first year here there. And there's a weird tendency where anytime teams play Powell and another big man, they're, they don't force any turnovers. They struggle on the defensive glass. And so even though they ha- uh, you know allow a pretty good defensive field goal percentage, they're still not very good defensively because of those weaknesses. So we'll see if San Antonio can overcome that arc. The other team I kind of disagree with you on real plus minus, though we've already done this on podcast a little bit, but the more I've thought about it is, so when I rank, if I rank my top 30 players in the league, I've got four Clippers in the top 30. I might have the four Clippers in the top 20, frankly, because I'm a big J.J. Redick believer, particularly because of his pack and what the high-volume, high-percentage three-point shooter does to a game. I I just, I guess I think they're the best-equipped team to challenge the Warriors. No, I, I, I tend to agree with that. I think that the Spurs are more likely are likely to win more games than them in the regular season. But I think if I was picking who's most likely to make the Western Conference Finals, that after the Warriors, it would be the Clippers. So I, I disagree with RPM on that one, too. I mean, I think it's mostly picking up age. The two in vogue teams, one East, one West, growing are the Boston Celtics. Al Horford in for Jared Sollinger. It, I, I run the stuff on this one, and it looks to me like when Pau Gasol replaced Kwame Brown in L.A. It just can't be more perfect. You just took a player who plays exactly as they want stylistically and is just a million times better than the guy who he replaced. Now, Kwame Brown was the worst in the league at the time, and Pau was like one of the top two. It's not quite as severe, but really, the more I look at this, I can't see anything that can go wrong with what's happening in Boston with Al Horford. Yeah, not with Al Horford. I mean, I think the one, the things you look at with Boston are, number one, they're still really dependent on Isaiah Thomas. So if anything, you know, knock on wood happens with my guy Isaiah, that's going to be a big issue for them. And then number two, how do they replace Evan Turner's role on the second unit? Uh, one thing I looked at when I was doing the Blazers player profiles uh, for ESPN Insider was the Celtics' offensive rating by whether they had which combination of Isaiah and Evan Turner they had on the court. So their best offense was just Isaiah. When they had Isaiah and Evan Turner, their offense was not as good because Evan Turner was playing off the ball, and that's not the role in which he excels. When Evan Tur- just Evan Turner was on the court, they were decent. And then when neither of them were on the court, they were atrociously bad. And that's the concern, I think, with them this year is they need Marcus Smart to step up to fill that role. All right. Uh, before we get into future player rankings, let's talk about my team, the Utah Jazz. I got to admit, every now and then when I look at things of all the places that they've replaced people, um, I have the same feeling I do with Boston. Like, it feels awfully good when you start looking at, you know, I'm looking at the other day, Gordon Hayward played on four groups that played 100 minutes or more last year. They were plus nine, plus nine, plus 11, and plus seven. Rudy Gobert played in four five-man groups that played 75 minutes or more. They were plus nine, plus 11, plus 10, and plus 20. And so clearly what happened was when the main guys were off the floor, they were a disaster. I mean, really maybe more of a disaster than anyone realized. And now they shouldn't be. Joe Ingles, who played 160 games for the Jazz in the last two years, may not be in the rotation. Chris Johnson, who played 18 minutes a night last year, may not make the team. So I look at this team, and it just feels like it's completely different than it was. Yeah, I think it reminds me of Boston last year where they just had this tremendous depth other than, I guess, David Lee, and that uh, that really made them effective against teams' second units. And as you say, when people talk about, you know, oh, people, are I think, have a hard time wrapping their minds around Utah being this good because they haven't seen it before. But the truth is they have seen it before with the Utah starting lineup. It's just with the Utah bench they haven't seen it, and that's going to have entirely new players and a lot more depth and experience. So, you know, a stat, I don't know if you saw, I tweeted this last week. I was looking at this to try to explain why my projections are so low on Memphis. And it was the number of minutes played in 2015-16 by guys on the 2016-17 roster. So Memphis, their roster last year, all their guys played combined about 13,000 minutes. And there's about 19,700 minutes in an NBA season. So they're going to have to make up 6,000 minutes. Part of that is, you know, Conley and Gasol being healthier, but they're also counting on guys like James Ennis and Wade Baldwin and, and Aaron Harris. Aaron, I can never remember which of the Harrisons is which. Uh, I think that's Andrew. Uh, those guys. That's right. There's a chance neither of them can play. Well, 
No comment. They're replacing depending on all these guys to play a bunch of minutes for them who have never done it before, and that's part of why I think I'm lower on them than most people who are just looking at how their starting lineup has improved with Chandler Parsons, if in fact he's healthy. Uh, Utah, by contrast, has played has, brings back has guys who played by far the most minutes in the NBA last year, almost twenty four thousand, nearly double what the Grizzlies guys played last year. So that's an interesting that that's that's also tricky for Quinn Snyder. Because he's got to keep some guys happy. We're playing very different roles this year. But that's part of why I think, you know, we're so high on the Jazz. All right, before we wrap up, future rankings are out. Do you want to uh, tease anything more on that? Just tell people to go check it out. You don't want to give away too much stuff? Or what do you want to share on the future rankings? Well, we talked about the rankings. I mean, you know, the top of the rankings. Is there anything that really stands out to you there? I thought it was surprised San Antonio still that high. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, their management score is number one in the uh, in the league by a fairly wide margin. They've sort of earned the benefit of the doubt there that if anyone is going to turn things over, that it's going to be them. And then, you know, the fact that they do have guys in their prime, in Kawhi and in Danny Green, you know, I, it's not going to have the same look in two to three years. Uh, and then also, again, it's total wins over the next three years. It's not where you're going to be in three years. I think that sometimes throws people a little bit. So the fact that San Antonio is probably going to have one of the three best records in the league this year helps them out quite a bit. That is Kevin Pelton. Follow him on Twitter at kpelton. I'm David Locke. You can follow me at Locked On Sports. Remember, the Locked On Podcast Network has podcasts for your favorite team. So go subscribe on iTunes to Locked On whatever it might be for you. Also, you can subscribe to this Locked on NBA and leave us a five-star review. We really appreciate that. Give Kevin a lot of love and clicks on ESPN.com. That would be appreciated as well. This has been brought to you by Casper, so you can go to Casper.com. Slash Locked. $50 off those incredibly designed mattresses. 100-day free trial as well. Casper.com slash Locked. Thanks so much to Kevin Pelton. Send him a little thank you at at kpelton. Greatly appreciate it. Support for this podcast comes from NetSuite. NetSuite lets you run your business from your phone, so you can see what's going on with your company in real time. Go to netsuite.com slash podcast to get your free guide and find out why NetSuite is the last business system you'll ever need.